Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. It's rather uncomfortable to hear Jesus talk about slavery and beatings. Let's just begin with that. Uh, But we are doing that because Jesus in this scripture is laying out very clearly the fact that there is work to be done. There's an expectation that Christians, both in Jesus' day and in the days henceforth, will be at work, that we are preparing ourselves and this world and others, that we have things to do because we don't want our God, our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords, our Lord and Savior, to come back and discover that we have been lazy, idle, that we have been abusive to other people, that we have been abusing our power and privilege, but instead that we have been attuned to the work that needs to be done. And as we have been kind of working our way through this book from H. Richard Niebuhr, a renowned teacher, professor, and theologian, uh, Christ and Culture, we have explored in our last worship service several positions about how Christ and culture could interact as we continue to kind of open ourselves up to discover how it is, in fact, that we as individual Christians interact with culture, kind of reflecting on how we as Crozet United Methodist Church and how the United Methodist Church interacts with culture and how others that we know and love and sometimes get frustrated with might be on a different position and therefore equipping ourselves to be in right relationship, having fruitful conversation, and ultimately working together to do the work that Jesus outlines for us. And so this week, we're going to be looking at Christ above culture. Last week, we talked about the initial position of Christ against the culture, which is something that most Christians reject, unless you're a part of a monastic order or you're one of those few denominations that really does kind of shun engaging in culture. Most of us are wearing clothing that reflects the trends in culture. We arrived here in a motorized vehicle rather than a horse-drawn carriage, and we will be engaging with various aspects of culture throughout the day and the days ahead, whether it's technology or whether it's music the arts, that there are things that we are going to do because we are a people that are immersed in a culture that exists both in and outside of the church. And so we kind of reject that position of Christ against the culture entirely, this this one end of the spectrum. The other one is the other end of the spectrum, which is Christ of the culture, that the only way we know Jesus Christ is through the lens of culture. And there are certainly a number of those Christians, but be by the fact that you are here on a Sunday that is not Christmas or Easter, you are not one of those people entirely. And so we do recognize that just because the culture doesn't show reverence for Jesus every Sunday or all throughout the year, we as Christians are called to this. And so we come into worship, we engage in the life of the church, we seek to engage in things that are somewhat countercultural, just so that we might be able to continue the work that was begun and inaugurated at Jesus' birth and arrival in our world and will be brought to completion upon his return. This gets us to Christ above culture. These are Christians who are very attuned to the fact that Jesus is coming back. And they look to this second advent, as we call it, this second coming, with expectation. 
Some of us look at it with trepidation, knowing that we have things that we need to do because God knows that we don't want to be those that are being punished for how we spent our time here before Jesus returns. But that we're also careful to see that not everything about human culture is evil, although not everything about human culture is good. Those Christians who are Christ above culture positions recognize, first of all, the theology that humankind comes from God. And there's certainly biblical precedent for this. When you read from Genesis, you discover that there are two creation narratives. The first one, creation on six days and then God resting on the seventh. That one is very orderly, very rational, very much so filled with wisdom and the power of God, bringing forth creation through the word. On day six, God creates humanity in pairs, males and male and female, and so populates the earth kind of in one fell swoop. In the second creation story, it's a little more gritty, a little bit more anthropomorphic. God is creating the first male out of the dust of the earth, breathes into him the breath of life, proceeds to go through a bunch, a plethora of options of who the perfect mate will be, eventually comes to the conclusion that we need to put the male to sleep and withdraw a rib and then create the first woman. And then, of course, that story just continues to deteriorate when we get to a serpent, a tree, and some forbidden fruit, which I encourage you to read later because that's a whole other sermon series. But as we look at this, both of those narratives say that God created humankind. Why is that important? Because culture is created by humans. Culture is a human achievement. It is our development of technology. It is our development of language and the arts. It is us continuing to be creative and innovative and create things that are both practical and both ethereal, things that are for our enjoyment and our entertainment, but things that really put forth our values. They help to establish how we're going to interact as people, norms and mores, to use the psychological terms. These are all things that are part of being a human being. And if you recognize that humankind came from God, that we were created in the image of God, both of those stories are true, that God put God's hands on us and created us and breathed life into us in the second story, then you know that we are not entirely evil, but that there is some mark of our creator in us and upon us, that there is something redemptive about being created in God's image and maybe that is what helps us to be attuned to being redeemed through salvation in Jesus Christ. But that we also know that as we read both of the stories, that we don't stay in that pristine image. That we do have a bent or an inclination to sin. And so it requires of us to recognize that human beings and humanity at large are capable of creating wonderful things. We can create things that move entire groups of people emotionally and mentally and even physically. But it also means that we have to be constantly discerning the things that are created by humankind because just as we can create wonderful things, including things that aid us in our mission to fulfill the gospel, things that help us to worship and adore our God, we also know that we can create things that cause harm and bring forth pain and suffering. And so it is incumbent upon the Christian who understands that Christ is above culture to constantly be reviewing and reflecting upon our culture to see which pieces are working and which pieces are not. In fact, that's part of the opening words from our gathering liturgy today from 1 Thessalonians that Paul says, consider everything, test everything, keep what is good and set aside what is evil. Clearly, you don't want to take on what is evil. You can make enough of that yourself. Don't take on somebody else's. Instead, focus on what people do that is good that might help to enhance your goodness. 
And that's what living in community is like. So for the Christian who understands Christ above culture, there's a willingness, there's almost a redemptive view of culture. Knowing that there are things that have been created and perpetuated outside the culture of the church that might be helpful to us. We experience this because, first of all, you are listening to me in through amplification, digital amplification. That is neither created in the Bible nor perpetuated by Jesus, but it is a human achievement of technology. And we use this because otherwise people wouldn't be able to hear me. Wouldn't that be a shame? People wouldn't be able to come together over what was said. I wouldn't be able to speak to as many of you all at once. I would probably hurt my voice if I tried to do that. But instead, we use this because we recognize that this can help us in the ministry of the Word. This can enable us to be more effective. And at 9.30, Doug Gaskell was sitting up here with his cell phone actually filming the message so that there was sight and sound so that people who could not be present with us or people who wanted to have a glimpse before they actually came and, and made themselves vulnerable by attending worship would have the opportunity to experience what our ministry of the word is. And hopefully, if they feel moved by that, they will come and join us and come in person and become part of the manifestation of the body of Christ that only happens in worship. So we recognize that technology has usefulness. Jesus did, also, uh, did not command that the apostles start sending out newsletters. But we do this because we realize that this creation of humankind, which was once fully paper and is now digital, enables us to get important information out to the members of our church and those that would like to become a part of the work of the body of Christ and the missions and the ministries of the church, that we continue to use innovations from humankind and secular culture to allow us, who are of the divine culture of the church, to be more effective, to reach people in a mode that they are used to, comfortable with, and attuned towards. And as we do this, we have to constantly wrestle with the good and the bad. One of the struggles that many churches and many clergy have over filming the sermon is that some people will go, well, I won't go to church. I'll just watch Sarah. That is not church, okay? I would love to say that you have done everything you had if you just watched me for 20 minutes. That would be idolatry and incorrect. Instead, we need all the pieces. For instance, anybody listening to this sermon right now is going to say, what, what gathering liturgy is she talking about? And when a moment when I reference what the choir sang for the anthem, they're going to go, well, I didn't hear the anthem. No, you didn't. Because some things you really do have to be here for. And you have to be here and experience it. And so for those people, hopefully it will remind them that worship is more than receiving the word. Worship is about coming together. It is about forming the body of Christ. And by coming together in community, it reminds us that no one person is sufficient to embody Jesus Christ. Jesus requires all of us to do that. And so we are living out our theology when we do these things. But as we pay attention to it, we recognize that sometimes there are things that can be very helpful to us. For instance, this week I took something that was completely secular, although I like to think of it as very sacred to myself, which are Care Bears. I grew up in the 80s, love Care Bears. Some of you will remember Care Bears, right? There are a bunch of bears that are various colors, and they all have big little portly tummies. And on their tummies are symbols that show what is special about each bear. And it's a gift or it's a, it's a talent that they have. It's something that is unique to them that they bring into their community. And when all of them gather together, they are able to not only just project a rainbow, which, by the way, is the biblical symbol for nonviolence, but they are able to come together and really bless everybody when they share. And some people go, well, why would you need a grumpy bear? Why would you need grumpy bear? He's got a rain cloud. 
But if you pay attention to Grumpy Bear, he's got a rain cloud that rains down hearts. Because sometimes in the sadness, that's when our heart gets tender and God breaks our hearts of stone. So as I had the children, I had all my Care Bears lined up here on the altar rail. We were talking about the Care Bears, and then I said, what's really interesting is you'll notice that almost all the bears look pretty much the same, right? Same shape, same central characteristics. They have some different colors up here, but there were some that were all pink and some that were purple, and they shared some colors on the spectrum. But what really made them different was that symbol, that there was something special about each one. And I said, God has created every person like that. There is something really special about you. And somewhere in a big book that some of us read routinely, it does say that the Spirit gives each and every one of us gifts. And there is no hierarchy of gifts, right? Sometimes we tend to think that some gifts are better than others. But that all the gifts are necessary for the body of Christ to be fruitful, to be productive, to be hospitable, to truly embody our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus called 12 apostles and not just one. Because it takes the many and all the diversity of the gifts to come together and make the church. And so I ended up giving the children all a piece of cardstock that had a blank Care Bear on it with no symbol and no color. I said, I want you to make a Care Bear of you. I want you to think about what it is that you do right now that is really good. Something that you do, maybe it's something you're passionate about. Maybe it's something that people say, oh, I really love it when you do this. Or something that really makes me feel happy when you do this. And so all the kids are going to get to design their own custom Care Bear. And of course, they're talking polka dots and glitter and rainbows and all kinds, all right up my alley. And I cannot wait to see how they take this secular concept of a Care Bear and imbue it with the same kind of language and teaching of the uniqueness that comes through the presence of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. And that together they recognize that there's a place for each bear, just like there's a place for each person in the church. And so that's one of the ways that I've kind of redeemed that piece of culture. Now, there are other things that we do to do that. Sometimes it's musical. In fact, my last church, we launched a worship service that was postmodern and post-contemporary worship style. And so one of the things we did was develop a theology of liturgy, so a knowledge of God in worship that was all around redemption, that we were going to take things that a lot of church services say are off limits because they're cultural and secular, and we're going to bring them into the service, especially since we wanted a service that was really going to resonate with people who would say, well, church isn't for me. I don't really like to worship this way, and I'm certainly not going to worship that way, and I really don't know if I belong anywhere if all I have are binary options. And so we wanted to create a third space for these people, which meant one of the first places we went to was non-traditional music. In the musical world, in the church, you have secular music and you have sacred music. And sacred music has traditionally been that music which we think of as created specifically for worship. Music that was created unequivocally to bring honor and glory to God, to bring the church together and allow it to sing God's praises. You know songs like this. And it's pretty standard, but also hard to be confused over what you're singing. If you sing over a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, we are not talking about the Pope. We are not talking about the President. We are not talking about our favorite NFL coach. We are talking about Jesus Christ, unequivocally, our great Redeemer's praise. It's very clear who we're talking about. And most people, if you started to sing that song in some other realm and tried to attribute it to somebody else, would go, this is not working. This is clearly a song about God. It's not going to work. 
And so people are aware of sacred music. Now, throughout the continuing encounter with culture, we have worship songs and we have devotional songs. We have songs that are actually meant to be sung by individual Christians, and then we have songs that are corporate for worship, and they're not exactly the same. And sometimes you have to be kind of attuned to that, because truly what we say in sing in church should really be all corporate words. We, our, us, because here we cease to be the single and become the body of Christ. We become the many worshipers of Jesus Christ. And so if we're constantly using I language, that can actually subvert that notion and kind of drive us back into individuality. But the beautiful thing is that we do recognize that there are some songs that people know that sometimes you can use to undergird your message. That if you frame it correctly, if you frame it with Jesus Christ, something that somebody would encounter every day of the week or regularly, and they would never think of Jesus. But if you frame it correctly and in the context of, sec of sacred worship, you encounter this, then the next time you hear it, you will be reframed to think of Jesus more than you would before. In the worship service we designed and innovated and launched, we did this with music and we started, you have to wade into this territory, this can get very dangerous. We waded into this territory with a song that helped to perpetuate the teaching of Philippians, where the Apostle Paul says, you know, in Christ we discover that we have many who care for us and love us that the community of Christ is actually a gift because otherwise we would be individual persons totally focused on ourselves. Or perhaps if we were lucky enough to have a spouse or family that would help us, then we would have a small group helping to look out for us. But because of the gift of the church, there are many who care for us, many who are watching out for us instead of just one or two. And Paul says this, that we are gifted to have not just ourselves, but all those people who are gathered with us looking out for us. And so we are enriched by that. And then we, in turn, don't just look out for ourselves. We look out for others, too, and reciprocate that kind of joy and gift of living in community. So we determined in this worship service that we would find a song that people were already familiar with and make them think differently. And it just so happens that there was a song that Bill Withers wrote called Lean On Me that did this. Lean on me, right? Let me share your burdens. When you're in trouble, call me, and I'll be your friend. And people were like, I didn't know that was a church song. And we said, it's not, but it is today. And I would think about this. I was raised listening to the Beatles. I don't know how many of you were raised listening to the Beatles or just listened to them the first time around. But if you did grow up listening to the Beatles, then you know that there is a song that says, come together, right? Come together right now over me. And when I heard that song, it made me think of communion. Because that's what Jesus does. All of these different people come together over Jesus Christ. And we now are changed and we have become one because of the gift of Jesus Christ. And I always thought, wouldn't it be really cool to do an entire communion liturgy and have Beatles music? I have not yet gotten anybody to buy into that, but we shall keep trying. But there are some things that are just not redeemable. I mean, there are just some things that I, I don't know how I'm going to work it. It's not going to work. And, you know, somebody's going to be like, nice try, Sarah. No, it didn't work. Uh, and so there are some songs that we're just not going to do. I mean, there have been plenty of songs that I've had people ask if we could play in the worship service for a funeral. And I go, you know what? That's a great song. There's nothing wrong with that song. But it is not appropriate in the worship service. Right? And sometimes what's really hard is that you have to frame things just right. I remember when we launched that worship service at my last church, someone came up to me and said, you know, that thing you do with the music, it's really kind of cool. I went to a church that tried to do that in the 70s, and it didn't turn out so good. And I said, why? What happened? And they said, well, I brought my dad, and the they opened up with, well, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And I was like, 
Yeah, that needed a lot of framing. You know, because if you can't be with the one you love, Jesus, then you should love the people you're with in the body of Christ. But it wasn't laid out that way, and it certainly wasn't received that way. And apparently, Dad's never been back to contemporary worship. So you have to be really careful about how you're doing it, right? You've got to engage things. and You've got to talk about what the theology is that you're trying to talk about. And as you are getting into this mode, you know, one of the things is that it helps us to take something that somebody is already comfortable with and familiar with and kind of give it back in a new way, an inspiring way that you can see it that way. And help people to see, oh, well, one, the culture isn't totally evil, but two, there are things that we can get from the culture. And when you're trying to raise Christian children, this gets vital because you could spend your whole time going, oh, no, 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 that's awful. You can't do that. But the reality is all their friends are doing it. You have to figure out some way to engage it. And for us, that's like video games. And so I try to encourage my child, you know, if you're going to play games, why don't you not play one where you try to mutually destroy each other? Let's not do that. Why don't we find one of those games where you guys work together? Right? Let's play one of those games where you have to combine your efforts and your energy in order to be successful. Sound like the body of Christ, anyone? And so we try to encourage those ones. You know, let's not try to just obliterate everything. Let's try to those games. In fact, he and I have gotten to the point where we really like the games where you get to make moral decisions. We love those games where you're developing a character over time and every time you encounter something, you get to make a decision and we have a conversation. Well, why would you make this decision? Right? And in this world, there's no Jesus Christ, so you can make any decision you want. But in a world where we live, where we know there's a Jesus Christ, what decision would you choose to make? What would you do to show this world here and testimony that you are a Christian and you believe that Jesus Christ not only redeemed you but is transforming you? Then what decision might you make and how might your character turn out? What kind of different morality, what kind of different vocation would your character have if you played this game like a Christian? We try to ask those questions. Now, sometimes you're really pushing something. I mean, let's just be honest. My kid coming up through playing video games, had a, there was an entire series of games called Skylanders. And if you haven't heard of that, count your blessings because it's very expensive and, and has lots of storage issues. And really, uh, it can be obnoxious. And so my kid had gotten into the third iteration of this game, and it had swap force in it. And the game had an extra portal, and you have characters. So not only do you have to buy the game, but then you have to buy characters. And the characters had magnets at the waist, and you could swap out the top of this character with the bottom of this one and create a new character. And it would be imbued with gifts and skills of both characters. And so my kid was incessant about this thing. And so finally he said, I'm not buying you any more of these characters until you can tell me something good about this game. And he said, well, I can't tell you anything good about this game until I get enough characters to beat the game. And I was like, no, I'm not falling for that one. I'm not falling for that one. And so he said, well, this has really nothing to do with loving Jesus. And I said, really? Let's take a look at this. You're playing a game which requires you to take people from different areas of this made-up realm and with different gifts and skill sets, and they have to combine. They would not normally combine, but you have to combine them and then use those skills together to progress in the game. You cannot win the game by playing with one type of character or one single, um, one single entity through the entire game. You just cannot progress. And is the body of Christ not like that? It cannot be one person all the time. It cannot be one voice, one perspective, one culture, one experience and way of doing things. It requires all of us to progress. And if we are so focused on what we as an individual want and what we think is appropriate and what we think God wants us to do as an individual Christian, then we will never get anywhere in building the kingdom. 
Instead, it requires us to go, you know what? This is what I'm really good at, but I recognize that I need somebody to help balance that here. And so we do combine. We use the head and the heart, the gut and the spirit. We use the strength. We use all of these things in order to help manifest the body of Christ, build the church, establish the kingdom here, and bring the word of Christ to other people. It takes all of us to do that, and we can't all think, feel, act, and speak the same way. And so he goes, so you're trying to say that the church is like Skylanders. And I said, no, I think what I'm trying to say is there are lessons in Skylanders that are like the church. He goes, you're really pushing that one. I said, probably, but if I'm going to sink any more money into this garbage, we're going to redeem it. And so we work at that. This is something that we have to struggle with because otherwise what we end up teaching people is that we live a binary existence, right? You have the things that you really love, the things that make you feel good, the things that you deal with every Monday through Saturday, and then on Sunday your life completely changes until you go home again and engage in all of those things. That's not the kind of unity of self that Jesus Christ suffered and died to bring. It requires us to say that if we have truly been changed, by the salvation of the cross, then we have to let that infiltrate the rest of our lives. We have to look at things differently. And the same goes for things that cannot be redeemed. Let's talk about that. There are some things that are just really hard struggles, right? And there are, there are songs. So one day somebody came into my office at my last church, and I had just the regular radio on, and uh, it's singing the song called Take Me to Church. Well, it's not about going to church. It's not about that at all. It's actually about, you know, making out with your girlfriend. And the person walks in and is like, really? And I was like, well, it says take me to church. And he's like, I know what that song means. And I was like, that's good. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what this song's really about. Let's talk about that. Because some things we're just not going to play here. I'm not going to have you all sing Take Me to Church by Hozier. It's just not going to happen. It's also not going to happen that we're going to sing any Black Sabbath. That's probably not going to happen. There's a whole era of gangster rap that's totally off, off the charts here. We're not going to be able to do that. But sometimes it is a point for us to stop and go, hey, what am I singing? So when I was seven uh, in the 80s, and when I was seven, I didn't, we didn't have the access to the kind of headphones and earbuds that we have now. And so, you know, you just had one big stereo and you just blasted it, right? That's what we did. And so I was blasting music in my room while I was cleaning. Can we just say I was cleaning? I was cleaning up my room. And my mother comes in because, of course, she's hearing me blast this music. And she goes, do you know what you're singing? And I was like, of course I know what I'm singing. I am singing Material Girl by, uh, by Madonna, and it happens to be a very amazing song. Have you heard it? It's very good. And my mom's like, no, 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 no. Let's talk about what you're singing. Let's talk about the lyrics. That you are a material girl living in a material world. That everything is very temporal. That everything is about being focused on acquiring and greed. That you won't even talk to a guy that doesn't have a credit card. Let's talk about that for a second. I was like, well, when you put it that way, it sounds really crappy. And my mom's like, yeah, it is. And I was like, are you trying to tell me that I have to throw away my Madonna cassette? Because that's really going to break my heart. And my mom said, no, my cassette, by the way, my cassette. And my mom was like, no, I'm not telling it. I'm not going to cut your cassette or break it or anything like that. She said, I just want you to think about what you're saying, because do you really think that's the kind of person that your father and I are raising? Do you really think that that's who Jesus would have you be, a material girl in a material world? I was like, no, but it's really fun to cling to. And she was like, well, good. If you can distinguish between what is good about this and what is bad, then that's the kind of Christian you need to be, right? You need to make sure that you can enjoy something but still recognize whether or not it is helping you to build the kingdom. 
And is that the song that you really want in your head 24 hours a day? Is that really what you want to be singing to yourself? Do you want that to be your personal anthem? Because a lot of us have personal anthems. It's that song that comes on and you were like, I own this room right now as I sing at the top of my lungs this song. And my mom said, I don't think that's the anthem that you want in your life. I don't think that's the song that you want to sing. And she was right. And in a way, she kind of ruined Madonna for me. But one of the things that happens now is that song comes on. I still jam to that song. I still sing that song. And then at the end, I think to myself, God, I really hope that I'm not a material girl. I really hope that I'm a Christ girl living in a world that is becoming more and more like your kingdom and that I am rejecting these things. And sometimes by singing them, it reminds me that that's not what I want, that instead I want something else. And then you have to work on putting a new anthem in your head, right? And sometimes that anthem is lean on me. And sometimes that anthem is come together right now over me. Or sometimes that anthem is here I am, Lord. Sometimes that anthem is amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. You have to figure out what you're going to be expressing through the culture that you have. Is that what you want? Now, the other side of that is that as we are making these decisions, as we are talking about them, we have to be aware that there are people who maybe agree with our position on how to interact with culture, and there are people that don't. And so the next time when someone says, hey, you know, this is something that we do at my job and it really works, I hope there's somebody that doesn't immediately jump on and go, well, that's not the church. No, maybe it's not the church. But Jesus didn't just stay in the synagogue and the temple either, did he? He went to parties. He went to weddings. He went to dinners. He stayed in people's houses. He hung out in the streets, hung out with sinners. That's definitely of the culture. And he encountered people there, and he brought his message of salvation to them in the mode that they knew. And the last thing I'll leave to you is that if we are not people that are willing to really engage with the culture in some kind of redemptive way, then we're kind of missing the point. Because one of the last ways that his adversaries tried to test him was to ask him about paying taxes. And what did Jesus say? Bring me a coin. Now, nowhere in the scriptures does God say, start minting money for me. Nowhere does that happen. That's a human cultural thing. And Jesus says, bring me the coin. And he brings the coin and he says, well, whose head's on the coin? And they're all like, well, Caesar's on the coin, duh. Because we don't have an image of God to put on the coin. So here's Caesar. And he says, great. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and give to God the things that are God. Most of us honor God with our tithes and our offerings through money that is not minted by the church of Jesus Christ. We do engage with our culture and we say, you know what? The culture produces this money and we can use this money to not only honor and worship God, but we can use this money to transform lives through the missions and the ministries of the church. We fund it through this. So we do recognize that sometimes, even when we're not fully aware, that we have a redemptive attitude toward the culture. Because very few people go home and plant crops and then bring up their crops up here. You're welcome to do that. We have Grace Grocery. We could probably rehome them. But the truth is that most of us are paid in money, in currency. And so we reciprocate by giving the first fruits of that back to God. We engage with culture whether we like it or not. And culture and Christ will be engaged whether we like how they collide whether we like how they come together or whether we choose to let Christ do something incredible here, just like we pray daily that Christ will do something incredible here. So when we continue to go about our lives, let's take a look at our culture. What is it that we do and say? What is it that we value? And how does our engagement with those things really reflect the fact that we believe that all of our sin is mounted to that cross and that we don't have to bear that burden anymore? And by the way, that's the message that God wants me to share with you 
and with you and with you and with everyone else. That's a culture that is working for Christ. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.